I have now seen 22 serial killers. It's fascinated me. I think any one of us, myself included, could kill. And wondering how someone could do that to someone else. It appalled me and it fascinated me. Bundy himself perpetuated the fantasy that he came from this perfectly normal childhood. So I interviewed family members. Things were horrendous for Bundy from conception on. When you couple some kind of brain dysfunction with a history of horrible early ongoing abuse, the social, the psychological, the biological forces that came together, you get a super dangerous person. Who you were in the park with? I don't know names. I just got lost. Where did you see the lady? One, one lady. The female jogger was severely beaten and raped. Every black male who was in the park last night is a suspect. I need all of them. All we need is for one to tie this whole thing together. These tapes are not as clean as the state would have you believe. Frenzy of these teenagers. Ripping off her they clothes. Are innocent of these crimes. They are guilty. Dressed like everybody else. They didn't have education like other people. The Avery family didn't fit into the community. The sheriff told the DA not to screw this case up. He wanted Avery convicted of this crime. Stephen Avery spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. We were getting ready to bring a lawsuit. $36 million. Manitowoc County itself and the sheriff and the DA would be on the hook for those damages. Sir Avery's blood is found inside of Teresa Halbach's vehicle. Halbach's last stop Monday was at Stephen Avery's home. If he did this, maybe it was good he was in prison all that time. Everything I've heard him say hasn't been the truth. It was extraordinarily disturbing. We went through this 20 years ago, and we're going through it now again. In this criminal justice system, good luck. You are probably the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom. In a statement given to the police and obtained by a Memphis newspaper, 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly allegedly confesses to watching two other suspects choke, rape, and sexually mutilate three West Memphis second graders. The murders had been part of a satanic ritual. Satanic worship. A horrific, ritualistic sacrifice. We, the jury, find Jesse Lloyd Miss Kelly Jr. guilty of second-degree murder. Jason Baldwin guilty of capital murder. Damian Eccles guilty of capital murder. This doesn't change. Anything. Our son Christopher's was still murdered. dead. Our son and he was, was tortured dead. to death by three murdering bastards on a ditch bank. He was eight years old. Hello and welcome to Dystopian Deep Dives with your host, Natalie Donna. What you just listened to were some clips from trailers of things that call themselves true crime documentaries, except for one, the When They See Us is actually just a dramatization. Uh, however, these productions serve as a particular kind of propaganda. I sat down with a good friend of mine, Roberta Glass. You can check out her podcast. It's everywhere podcasts are hosted uh, to talk about this very insidious messaging. So when did you notice uh, like the trend of so-called true crime documentaries being pretty inaccurate? Um, I, it start, you're right, it started with the West Memphis Three, but I bought into it 
just like everybody else. And I can't say everybody else because there's a lot of really sharp people that said they knew they were guilty from the first time they watched the documentary. That is not me. Uh, I was totally, I totally bought into it. And I thought everything in the media, mainstream media was saying that they were innocent and that this, and when they got out, I was, I remember the day they got out. This is how long it took me to catch on. <laughs> I remember the day that they got out. I was happy that they got out. I thought that an mm-hmm. injustice had, had been corrected. And it wasn't until I started listening to, I heard, um, I think it was Ed Opperman was the first uh, per, podcast I ever heard about it. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I've never heard anyone has in a position that was otherwise. So I started looking into it, started reading the transcripts. And I was shocked, yeah. really shocked by it. And um, so, what are some? Of that those, was the yeah. beginning. That was the beginning, the beginning of uh, the beginning of me realizing. And you know, we, I think what's really scary. There was just an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal by a woman, Jillian K. McClure, and she was talking about Netflix being a left wing propaganda machine and she Mm -hmm. talked about making a murderer and she had once again read the transcripts which is what I encourage all my listeners to do Mm -hmm. and that is how they get away with it because most Americans are overworked don't have time or the interest to really read the transcript right so they they don't understand until you read the transcripts you the court transcripts you don't realize how wildly inaccurate these documentaries are so she read the Making the Murderer transcripts, and she was horrified. It, it's interesting that this article comes out now because Ken Kratz, who was the prosecutor, came out right away. He did something very unusual, at, which is he, as soon as the documentary came out, he said, this is a lie. And he started going after the media, trying to get on as many things as he could to get the message out that this was wildly inaccurate, this documentary. And I believe he succeeded because Making a Murderer 2 was a huge disaster. And except for a handful of really, I would say, um, conspiracy-minded people, Mm -hmm. because the conspiracy mindset is key in all of this. So they believe that blood, and this includes... uh, Stephen Avery's lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, they believe the blood was planted by the police, mm. that the blood that the police were hiding in the bushes and stole some of his blood while he was shaped, cut himself shaving. It's that outrageous. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's an insult to conspiracy theorists, really, to yeah. call it conspiracy mindset. It's so far out, but it's key in, in the innocence movement to have or the I would call it an anti-incarceration movement. What I wanted to ask, right, so we were on the topic of, like, this propaganda, sort of who's behind it. This was one of my Mm -hmm. notes. Um, You know, you mentioned To Make a Murderer, which is, you know, one of the most, I think, egregious examples of this. So who are these, uh, like, I think a lot of these experts probably appear in these documentaries who work for anti-death penalty uh, sorts of organizations. Is this true or am I making stuff up? There is an overlap between the, the de- anti-death penalty movement and the wrongful conviction movement. They are very much aligned, but you're right. There's the same, co- there's certain 
lawyers who are really embedded in the movement that go from um, case to case, innocence project to innocence project, and even internationally. Mm. From So a lot of the making a murderer lawyers went to England and talked to their the innocence project. They're not called the innocence project. They're called like the innocence. Gosh, help me. I'm so sad. It's like the innocence something else. <laughs> but I'll find it. A I'll, lot, I'll find a picture of it. ideologically with the innocence project over there. So mm. they're it, they're really trying to create a global movement. Right. And it's based on this idea that we have massive problems with people being wrongfully convicted. And it's ba- it, it's a lie. It's all based on a lie. Yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I always have to hedge and say, oh, it's not that it doesn't happen. But it's very rare. Yeah, and it's these, not exonerations that we see in the news if you really everyone that i've looked into where they've paraded these gentlemen out and saying that this was a wrongful conviction the where i've looked at the transcripts i have highly doubted that the person is innocent and what they do is they find a piece of dna or a piece of evidence for example there was just a case in in new york where um a gentleman was identified by a uh, 10-year-old boy as the, the rapist murderer of this woman. The murder weapon, which was a pair of scissors, was found in his home. The woman's purse was found in his home. But they retested the DNA um, on, the, on, on the, I believe it was either on the woman's panties or in the woman. I can't remember exactly. Uh, I'm sorry. That's okay. But um, it was too, it, it was too low to identify someone else, but they say it wasn't he. So what? because of this degraded DNA, he was set free with the assistance of the Queen's DA. Do you remember who, the name of this person? Jason Kendrick. I'm sorry. Jason Kendrick. Jason I knew Kendrick. Was, I knew I was messing it up. It's not Jason. Jason. T H A N Kendrick. Hmm. And that, and he was just released. And the ten, and the now a grown up who was a ten, is apologizing publicly for picking him out in a lineup. I mean, this is craziness. Hmm. I happen to think he was right. I'm sorry. You know, maybe Mr. Kendrick can explain how the victim's purse got in his house. <laughs> exactly. It's a really good example because I just heard someone summing up the Innocence Project saying what they do is they find DNA, you know, they use DNA, and DNA sounds so ironclad and, and, and specific, and how could any DNA that wasn't the murderer's DNA be on a person, but we pick up DNA all the time, mm-hmm. and they like to test things that are um, unrelated. Mm. And it, it's really funny, in the, but then in the case of Rodney Reed, which is a death penalty case that's going on right now, they retested the DNA, all this touch DNA on the victim, Stacey Stites' clothing and back brace, and it all came up with Rodney Reed's DNA, which is a miracle. These things are a miracle. If you think about how many people you touch, how many things you touch, how many stuff, hairs are left over, how much other people shed, how much, you know, there's, we have all sorts of DNA in our houses. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any, not now, obviously with COVID, not as much left over, but 
people come in and out. And uh, it's a miracle when these things happen that it, it's, it's just the killer's DNA that they find. It's a miracle. And they count on that. They count on leftover, unidentified DNA. And they mm-hmm. will never go after the other person. Do you know what I'm saying? They'll never, they'll just right. say it's someone else's DNA. And uh, there was a case in Chicago, Nevis Coleman, where they said, oh, it was another rapist DNA. And they never named the rapist. Wow. So who is this rapist? The guy's walking out, walking around. This woman's body was found. It was a gang rape. And they really count on, that's another thing that they count on, which is gang rapes. Oh, my God. So where a lot of people are obviously involved. And um, so if it's not the particular person, if they can't identify it, if it's and the Central Park Five really skated out on that as well. If the DNA isn't there, if it's someone else's, obviously it's not the killer, but it's not that simple. And that's what they skate out on. But what we're talking about is documentaries. And I think documentaries are akin to DNA because we think of documentaries as being truthful, Mm -hmm. factual, and not manipulated. And we are going into a different realm of documentaries and podcasts where the, what we see is, uh, is really an activist documentary Mm. from a, a point of view and they cherry pick. And in the case of making murder, they edited the trial testimony to make it look other than what it was. Wild. And, yeah, and people accept it as truth. Some of the most egregious examples you've already mentioned, uh, To Make a Murderer, The Central Park mm-hmm. Five, uh, also Adnan Saeed, you know. I th- Syed. Syed. And she won a, a Peabody Award, <laughs> Sarah Koenig, for that. And she, you don't see her campaigning for his innocence now. What happened? Mm. Well, wasn't she hired by a relative of Adnan? Right. His, his, his advocate, I would say, friend of the family. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Koenig wrote Adnan Syed's lawyer before it started and said, I would not do this podcast if I didn't feel Adnan was innocent. So... And then there was another... The podcast is presented to the public like she's investigating and trying to make (laughs) a decision. In the end, she hedges and says, I nurse doubt. What does that mean, I nurse doubt? We all nurse doubt to a certain extent, in every case, a little bit. How much doubt are you talking about, Sarah Koenig? Wow. And she's never done a piece like this again, which I find very interesting. I I, I don't want to... She went and she looked at the justice system sort of uh, like a, in another, but not one case. She never investigated one case like this again. Mm. And I don't know if that's not wanting to repeat what she's already done or if it's guilt or I'd have to, I, haven't, I don't know. She hasn't spoken up. I'd be very curious to ask her. And then who produced the other uh, documentary about Adnan? There was, was it Netflix or HBO? That was HBO. Yeah. And what was interesting about that documentary was it was a total failure. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of people who watch that documentary 
says that they thought he was more guilty than ever. Mm. So they went in not really knowing and that they, they came out thinking that because all roads in this case, it's so amazing that all roads lead back to Adon. His fingerprints are all over her car, I, the glove box, the trunk. And, and of course they went to DNA. That was the big bombshell in that is they went to test DNA <laughs> in, in the car. And it came back because Adnan admitted to his friend that he wore gloves. So it, it didn't come back as his DNA, and that was the big exonerating factor. But by then, the Supreme Court in Maryland had already, uh, or close to when that documentary came out, made a decision that even if, Adnan was retried that another jury would find him guilty. Yeah. So where's all the doubt? I mean, you have to think about a jury of 12 people. Do you know how hard it is to get 12 people to decide on anything? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I, I think it is an interesting sort of takedown of the justice system uh, being just completely corrupt and we see that sort of mentality where the whole system's corrupt and we're going to throw it in the garbage can. And these sorts of people who advocate for anti-death penalty uh, are, I feel, deeply embedded in this stuff. But what I wanted to mention about the HBO documentary, and I think I've noticed this in some of their other production, is that there's animation which I find really weird. It's like, okay, how dumb do you think your audience is? Mm. Well, uh, the, uh, most, one of the most egregious examples of animation was in the recent documentary by Alex Gibney, Crazy Not Insane, which looked at psychiatrist Dorothy Lewis's career of examining the brains and testifying in defense of some of our worst uh, killers, mm -hmm. including Arthur Shawcross. And I don't know if she ever testified for Ted Bundy, but she did uh, examine him. Yeah. So uh, um, the one case, and it's very, um, I, I would love to find a different word. I use the over word, you overuse the word interesting, but it's very interesting to note that Dorothy Lewis in that documentary only lies about the small cases, the mm. old cases for, that people don't know about. And she took one case, which is a death penalty case of Marie Moore, which was incredibly complicated. And I talk about it on my podcast. You can hear more. Mm -hmm. It has to do with her uh, faking phone calls from Billy Joel. Anyway, she what? took her. <laughs> yes. I still haven't listened to it. I, yeah. <laughs> I have it's to. It's very complicated. That's such a great and, teaser. So, <laughs> I think we'll just leave it at that so we can send people over to your uh, podcast and your channel. So <laughs> it's I, I don't, wild. I, I don't um, criticize them for, for making the, for simplifying the case. But what they, what she says about it was that Marie Moore was under the influence, had a relationship with her daughter's 14-year-old, this is a 30-something-year-old adult, having, she calls it a relationship with her daughter's 14-year-old boyfriend. Now, I don't know what you would call that. I would call that child rape, but okay. I'm not saying mm. that the boyfriend was great. 
he was obviously sadistic, had some sadistic elements in him, but Marie Moore uh, was the catalyst in that. And the way the documentary looks at it is that the the 14-year-old kid was calling the shots and making her sadistic. But all the violence, all the beating started with Marie Moore. Right. So always a reversal of, of, you know, the actual facts. And they leave out all the victims' names. And she's very callous when she's talking about Arthur Shawcross. She says he has seizures after he kills and uh, he wakes up and says, oops, I did it again. And she laughs. Ah. She's laughing about a serial killer. Yeah, you sent me the you sent me the uh, trailer, which I'll include in the podcast because it's just wild how this woman wants to make me feel bad for Ted Bundy. Well, her worldview is that there's no evil, and that is a bigger question than I can answer. Hmm. But whether people are born evil or made, and her. She believes people have abusive childhoods and that makes them, abusive childhoods and brain injuries makes them into these kind of terrible killers and that evil is a religious concept. But I will tell you in my work that I've done for almost now three years looking into these cases, these crimes are some of the darkest, mm-hmm. most vicious, sad cases you'll ever look at and it does make you think of evil if you don't think that I I don't know I Mm. I, I think that takes out a level of personal responsibility Mm. that is key in in all of this otherwise why are we punishing you know if if everybody's a victim then why punish anybody right Right. And I think it diminishes the real victims of these crimes and the families who have to deal with the pain and the suffering of, you know, the loss of a loved one. It's pretty sick. It's pretty insidious, I think. Um, Absolutely. And no victims' names are mentioned in, in in the entire documentary. So that will tell you the the level of care that they gave to victims and their families yeah. while making that documentary. And when I tweeted Alex Gibney about it, because I was pretty upset, so I wrote to Alex Gibney, don't you think you owe it to Marie Moore's victim, Teresa Fury, to give an accurate portrayal of her crime? Hmm. So not only in this documentary is it completely, do we hear the narration of Dr. Lewis inaccurately summing up Marie Moore's crime, but it's also animated. Mm -hmm. So, so so it really, so they had to, I, I don't understand. They spent all the money to animate it, but they can't fact check it. Well, I I believe they're creating this propaganda on purpose. For what reason? I have no idea. Uh, okay. <laughs> so let me continue on here. So uh, just, yeah. Or is it better to illustrate Dorothy Lewis's lie so she can make more look like a victim? And he wrote me back. So kudos to Alex Gibney. Thank you for answering me. I appreciate it. The film did not diminish the cruelty of the murder, he wrote back. 
Do so, you agree with that okay. assessment? <laughs> <laughs> so if I talk about something like Senator McCain's torture, and I say that American soldiers did it, but I show how terrible the torture is, that's fair? It doesn't matter how, the circumstances? Because you're making a film all about the circumstances of murder and the killer's childhood is key. So suddenly, circumstances don't matter, just the viciousness. Of the, I, I don't understand. It's, right. it's nonsensical answer to me. I, I, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I wish he had told, I would love to interview Alex Gibney and tell me more. I would love to know more about the thinking behind this because uh, I, I don't want to speculate it looks mm -hmm. like an anti-death penalty activist piece and that they didn't want to talk about her culpability in it because it would make her look like she deserved the death penalty. <laughs> right. And it's really shocking when people like Sister Helen Prejean, who's a nun, constantly lies about the case, these death penalty cases. <laughs> a nun! Yeah, it's hey. pretty wild how deep it goes the sort of corruption that we see uh, when we're talking about these things. It's just, I mean, just why would they produce this material and why would they feed lies to people? And I don't, I don't actually blame people who don't want to read all the documents and don't want to, you know, involve themselves. They want something that's easy to digest. I suppose if you can call true crime documentaries easy to digest, um, you know, I, I um, wanted to ask you what cases you're currently following. Oh, I have a lot of stuff I'm cooking up. I don't oh, want to, wow. can I not say? Oh, you can, yeah, you can totally not say. <laughs> Surprise us. Yeah, I do like to, okay. but, but what I'm more interested in and what I correctly predicted and I, what I can tell you I am following is the election of DAs who are very much aligned with the anti-incarceration movement mm -hmm. and will not, pro they just don't even want to prosecute. So what, what I think the next wave of where this movement is going is to what they would say, prevent wrongful conviction by not convicting anybody. So they're, yeah. also, they're also avoiding rightful conviction. I would say. I've seen a and, lot of news like that. I forget which city it was, probably Seattle, but just like decriminalizing all misdemeanors. And in Minnesota, my friend just told me that they decriminalized carjacking. Perfect. So that's not a felony anymore. I mean, it's not a felony anymore. And uh, now we have no, no, the, no bail. Right. So people are getting, we have a revolving door. People get arrested and get right out of jail um, and go out and commit more crimes. Crime is up, you know, just through the roof in New York and other cities. Mm -hmm. And instead of having DAs who really will, will prosecute crime, we have no justice for victims and they just won't even be prosecuted. And I think that's another element that people don't understand that the work it takes to prosecute someone, mm. and this is why there's so many deals that are made behind the scenes, because the money it takes and the work it takes to prosecute people, and the wrongful conviction movement would like the American public to think that they're so hungry, personally hungry, for their 
their own ambition pushes them to move forward and prosecute people who are innocent. That's absurd. Absurd. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't understand the motivation to do that. I feel like you would make a whole lot more money being a defense lawyer. Um, that, that's where they go. Even Ken Kratz from making a murderer became a defense attorney. Right. That's, <laughs> they retire and become defense attorneys. That's where the money is. In, in, and the indeed. wrongful conviction movement, I just had a, a woman on, um, who said who, who deals with juvenile murderers? She's uh, the president of the National Organization for Victims of Juvenile Murderers, and she and she said that the the movement to end life without parole sentences for juveniles is a billion dollar movement, mm. and the ACLU, Amnesty International, all the innocence projects, state to state. Nationally, it comes to a billion dollars. Yeah, it's big business. Uh, and that's why it's very strange, like, and it seems to become a sort of global push towards this idea, yeah, that I guess we're all victims. And it's just very strange, the whole situation. I, I don't know what to make of it. And the more that you tell me about it, I'm just sort of like, why? What? You know, ultimately, it just seems like the destruction of trust in institutions. I think that's kind of a big theme that we're, you know, wrapping up here in 2020. You know, lots of information sort of warfare, you know. Um, Mm-hmm. And I think HBO right. and Netflix are producing uh, information warfare, and that's just my opinion. Uh, I just see these patterns, right? And they use the same playbook, the DNA, etc. It's always the same, and it's always someone who's, you know, there's a lot of other evidence against the person. They've been convicted, you know, 12 people decided that person's guilty, so... It's I it just blows my mind every time I think about it. And I'm wondering if there are any actual true crime documentaries worth watching. <laughs> Do you think uh, yes, A Murder in the Park, mm-hmm. which is about a case in Chicago, death penalty case where a guy was days away from ex, uh, being executed. A group of Northwestern uh, students invest, reinvestigated his case but by not interviewing any of the really important people, uh, freeing this murderer also, and they also framed and got a false confession Mm -hmm. out of an innocent guy. So the guilty guy walked and, uh, um, (laughs) and the innocent guy got put in prison. All story. Simon was the innocent man. Uh, Anthony Porter was the guilty guy on death row. He's currently out. Mm-hmm. walking around mm-hmm. and all story Simon now an innocent guy currently out walking around. So when people ask me, are there cases of wrongful conviction? I, the first one I point to is the one that the innocence project did themselves. Which right, is they, created the, one. they created one. And, uh, 
it's an amazing, amazing story. And if you want to, it's what I think is so important about that documentary. And there's great, um, Martin Pribe has written a great uh, book called Crooked Seal City that, that talks about, there's a great journalistic pieces written about it. But if you want to, um, if you don't want to read and you want to watch a documentary, Murder in the Park is really interesting because you can see what people are promised behind the scenes. And that's what we don't see in when they put together these innocence, what I call innocence fraud cases. Like currently Rodney Reed, that's something I'm watching closely, which is a death penalty case. I mentioned it before. Mm-hmm. He raped and murdered Stacy Stites. And what he's saying, which I think is the most disgusting abuse of, of the victim, what he and his supporters are saying is that he had a consensual affair that no one knew about. There's no letters, no phone records, no one else but this one woman who came, at, who worked with Stacy, not on the same shift at the supermarket with her, who said that Stacy Stites, the victim, said to her that she wasn't excited about her wedding because she was having an affair with a black guy named Rodney. Doesn't that sound like something that someone would say to, and we don't see if she was promised, if she was guilted, that if she didn't come forward, this guy was going to die. We don't know Mm. why she came forward. There was a $50,000 reward at the time for any information uh, to convict the rapist killer of Stacy. And she kept her mouth shut the whole time. during that time but now years later after the fact you know she's telling a story that is highly implausible also you can listen to my Rodney Reed episode I did called the truth about Rodney Reed Mm -hmm. with Lisa O'Brien where he talks about the timing the shift she worked and how unlikely on a lunch break that they would even have the time to talk to each other and no phone records either no phone records that connect Rodney there's nothing but this woman's very implausible, highly unlikely story. And she, there's a, also an uh, actual justice warrior who's a, a YouTuber, just did an excellent video yesterday on it. And what he was saying, I thought was interesting, was that the conversation is, the way she relays what the conversation is unlikely, and she also paints herself as the hero, that she's surprised no one else came forward. And if she's the only one standing between Rodney Reed and the death penalty, you know, mm-hmm. she paints herself as the ultimate savior and that should be a red flag. I mm-hmm. thought that was a, a, a sharp take. Yeah, that's an interesting assessment. We see a lot of sort of virtue signaling going right. on. Right, we, we see a lot of these people coming forward, but you'll see in Murder in the Park what they were offered, book mm-hmm. money. They're offered mm-hmm. film money. Mm-hmm. They don't ever, they usually don't ever get it, never comes, but they're offered things to, to have new stories years later. And that's an also essential part. And the other thing, even if the public um, doesn't entirely believe these stories, it creates enough doubt and enough confusion mm-hmm. that the public will be comfortable when these people are released, a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. Um... Who do you think is worse, HBO or Netflix? <laughs> I think they're equally as bad. Yeah. And that was the the interesting thing about the Wall Street Journal article was that she had read all these transcripts and that Netflix was so terrible. 
but she has not read as many transcripts of these related to these documentaries. I don't, I mean that, that as a kind of boast as I have, it's just my interest. Mm -hmm. I don't expect a journalist to have the same interest as I do. It is so widespread. She has no idea how widespread this is. And she talks about when they see us, which is not a documentary, right. which is a fictional account, but people accept it as a documentary, which is, it's got to be, what do you say about that? It, they say it's a, this is a fictional account based on a true story. It's just but as bad people, as like any TV movie that was produced, you know, before Netflix arrived on the scene, right? You know, these sorts mm-hmm. of sensational stories of the week. You know, yeah, but you you compare it to something like uh, the TV movie that was done about Jeffrey McDonald, the Fatal Vision, based on Joe McGinnis's Fatal Vision book. That, aside from one fact, I, there's one fact in it, and it's not even a, a very important. It has to do with who, which daughter wet the bed. This is a family annihilator, Jeffrey McDonald, who's doing life without parole in prison hmm. for killing his wife and, and, and unborn baby and kids. Hmm. Um, uh, that was incredibly accurate, hmm. but it didn't come from the position of innocence. Which mm-hmm. is, is that the difference? Do you because think this you, is fairly like a new movement? How long do you think this has been going on? I think it's been going on for a, a long, long time because if you go back to what is now on the left considered a classic case of wrongful conviction, which is Sacco and Vanzetti, mm. a, a biographer of Upton Sinclair who wrote the book about Sacco and Vanzetti and was embedded in the defense team, they found his letters where he's saying, I know these guys are guilty as hell, but I think the public expects a book on innocence. Wow. So this has to be... Maybe I'm thinking that innocence fraud is the most American, oldest thing in the book. It's just the money that's in it now. Because Mm. once these guys are released, they sue everybody. So I can't say they sue everybody, but they tend to sue a lot of people. Look at someone like Ryan Ferguson. Um, They make deals with the police department. They sue. And meanwhile, his co-murderer is still sitting in prison. And that's a case where his lawyer, Kathleen Selner, went from court to court to court, got turned down, got turned down, got turned down, got one court to finally say yes to her bogus, ridiculous pieces of nothing, and got him released. And then she got all his wrongful conviction money. There's so much money in suing the state, suing the police department. And uh, it's really sad. It's also a lot of um, police officers feel that this is an anti-police movement, too. Well, we see that sentiment being, you know, uh, echoed uh, by, you know, so-called progressive uh, Democrats, I guess. The wrongful conviction movement. It is the biggest fraud. If there's a bigger fraud going on in America right now, I don't know about it. Um, the only bigger fraud is that a bunch of people believe that men can become women, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, I w- I w- I'll, go to, I'll go to bat. I'll say this is, yeah, that, 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 there's some money-making fraud in that, too. But I would say that this is, this is much more widespread and much more funded.
Yeah, and also older, I think, a much more rampant sort of situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do do you do you have any idea of what the end game could be, or? I I ask myself that every day. Why? (laughs) And I think it's deeply connected to identity politics. Mm -hmm. So we just had a gentleman put to death. Who burned a uh, burned Stacy Bagley and her he burned her alive. Her what? her husband had already been shot. Burned her alive, and we have people like James Charles saying a, a black man has been put to death, and this is a terrible tragedy. I, I'm I'm also really leaving out a lot in that crime. They were kidnapped. Uh, tortured for a tied up, tortured for hours, and then and then eventually shot, and and and, and burned alive. And the oh Stacy Bagley was burned alive. So it was really, I would say, if any kind of, I don't know how anyone feels about the death penalty, but that's one of the more heinous crimes. That's why he got the death penalty. It's not a yeah. mi- mystery, and it's whether you want to get rid of the death penalty, fine. That's what you want to do, but what are we going to do with some of these? Is is that an appropriate punishment? What is the appropriate punishment for some of our most heinous crimes? That's the question. Well, I definitely don't think they should be allowed in the public. You know, that's just Mm -hmm. a danger. These people who claim to care about, like, safety and things like this, you know, it seems like they just create dangerous situations where, you know, you're just going to let these people out who are, yeah, I mean, we can have a discussion about rehabilitation, recidivism, the criminal justice system, but at the end of the day, and we can have a conversation about evil, I guess, but at the end of the day, I think there are dangerous people out there, and I think their crimes uh, make it so that they... I've already said, I don't believe in your laws or your rules, and f- then screw you. You can't participate in the society, and that's mm-hmm. how I feel. I don't know, you know, about the death penalty. I don't have much of an opinion on it, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I do feel like these criminals, uh, you know, should be locked up at, at the very least, and <laughs> that's how I feel. That's my personal Take. And so I just don't understand. If you wanted to try to find people who are really innocent and uh, make an argument about the death penalty, that, you know, I welcome it. Fine. That's, you know, your prerogative. But that isn't what they're doing. You know, they're not actually finding innocent people. That's why this is so wild to me. Um, and, the, and the other interesting thing is once they got rid of the death penalty for juveniles, they went immediately after, this is in 2005, they went immediately after life without parole sentences for juveniles. So if they get rid of the death penalty, is the next step to get rid of life without parole sentences mm, for our offenders? So I would think so. That's, I think this is really an anti-incarceration movement. Mm. And if you don't want to incarcerate people, what do you want to do with our most dangerous offenders? What's have them out in the... And and I would ask the people that are really a part of this movement if they want these people in their homes. They want them even cat sitting, their cat, or their right. dog sitting their dog. Would you hire this person as a pet sitter? Would you? <laughs> oh, pet sitter, take care of your kids. 
Yeah, drive or, or bus, even check on the house while you're away on vacation, you know, whatever. Drive your, be the bus driver, drive your kids to school, because that's Ugh. the reality when, when these offenders are released. They go into society. And the other interesting thing is that when they get released, they, they always do these kind of innocent, uh, innocent project speaking tours about how much they appreciate life being out, how terrible prison was and how much they appreciate life. But they tend not to do much with their lives besides these speaking tours. Mm -hmm. Look at Amanda Knox. Look at Ryan Ferguson. Even hold down a job. I'm not talking about, you know, curing cancer. I'm just talking about contributing to society by holding down a a job, nine-to-five job, anything. Well, they consider that their job. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So. I guess doing these speaking things about how terrible their time was in prison is now their job. It's just uh, just kind of an interesting thing. They say they have such a new appreciation. They're going to appreciate every minute they have as a free person. But that doesn't seem to include really giving back in any kind of meaningful way. No, it's, they, they're giving back by further supporting this propaganda <laughs> and right. becoming symbols I mean, you look or, at someone or like, mouthpieces or martyrs, you know. Uh, it's pretty. You look at someone like Jason Baldwin, who set up his own kind of innocence project organization, and when he had to file his taxes, everything was, most of the money raised was spent on maintaining the organization. It's mm. Not, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, flights, uh, travel, office space, right. salaries. So, not too much money left over to help the free the quote-unquote innocent people incarcerated. Yeah, I feel like nonprofits are a whole nother can of worms. You know why documentaries and the film, the entertainment industry is a perfect place for the wrongful conviction movement because it is, it's all about surface, the mm-hmm. surface. Mm-hmm. And the bore anything that's the boring mundane details, it it, look, it looks good, it sounds good on it's all about right. surface. It only works on a surface level. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. It's uh, it, the entire premise of of making you know it, exactly sort of what Larry Wachowski was saying in that video. Everything comes together in the editing room, right? It's all a performance. Linda Fairstein sued Netflix for when they see us. And Linda Fairstein, when she heard they were making When They See Us, she naively offered all her information and everything she knew about the Central Park Five to help the filmmakers make a more accurate, better film. But immediately they started, they, they rejected that help and immediately started a Twitter campaign defaming her. And what it says in that lawsuit against Netflix is so scary because the crux of that lawsuit relies on when they see us being a fictional portrayal based on a true story. Do you know what I'm saying? They said it's not a, it says so many times in that lawsuit, this is not a documentary. What would her legal, um, recourse? what do you call it? What legal opportunities be or what, what legal strategies could she have? I know Colburn is also suing new Netflix in the making a murder case, mm-hmm. but if it was a documentary, do you have more leeway in a documentary 
than a, than a fictional portrayal. Because in when they see us, they make Linda Fairstein look like she prosecuted the case. She never prosecuted the case. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it is wildly inaccurate. But what if that were a documentary? It, it's that's a scary notion. So just for it, people who don't know, who is Linda Fairstein? But she investigated the Central Park Five. She didn't mm-hmm. prosecute it. But in the documentary, they have her saying, uh, round up all the, you know, the black and Latino kids that you can find on the streets, all the innocents, <laughs> and we'll bring them in and we'll frame them. We'll tell yeah, them what to say. Yeah, that's what was happening them. that night. <laughs> but yeah. I mean, it, but she's also a, really a hero. Yeah for women and and revolutionized the way that a lot of these rape cases were prosecuted in, Mm -hmm. in New York. And instead is her, she lost all her charities. She lost her publisher from them. Absolutely slandered. And I I just, she, in my opinion, she should be held up as a, a, a hero. Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's always the reversal. It's always the inverse. Here's a person, you know, it, and they're just going to defame and slander all of their life's work, their entire she life's was head, work. She was head of the sex crimes unit mm-hmm. in the Manhattan DA's office from 1976 to 2002. So that was her position, and because this was a sexually motivated crime. But what the Central Park Five has never answered is if they didn't okay if they didn't rape a, and batter the jo- the jogger melee uh, then who who um, robbed beat the other six people in mm-hmm. the park that night so who and they say they were in the park watching going from place to place in the park watching a group of kids doing this so they're following around another group of kids, beating, uh, robbing and beating bicyclists and joggers. What what the heck is going on? No, it's just that like, makes no sense. No, no. The Even narrative. Ken Burns' documentary is so damning to them. Yes. And his daughter worked in the. She was a paralegal for the legal firm that was suing the city. They wanted hundreds of millions of dollars for the Central Park Five's quote-unquote wrongful conviction. And that, in my opinion, this is just my opinion, uh, and I can't back it up, seems like the biggest dirty deal done. And uh, the judge's decision makes no, when they freed the Central Park Five, makes no sense. It doesn't answer any questions about who beat and robbed all the other people mm-hmm. in the park that night and why people were phoning them in. Right. And, and why all the friends were identifying each other. It's a huge group of people and stories. And the, the police could not have planted all those stories. It just doesn't make sense. Even if you're going to say, well, the police fed them all that. They didn't know. The police themselves didn't know. Yeah, the conspiracy so is too involved. big for it to hold up. Uh, there's, you, you know what I mean? The more people that are involved in a so-called conspiracy, the less likely it is to, you know, and there's, there, there would have to be a massive <laughs> people, all, all of, these people calling in, right? That they'd have to fake those records somehow. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense at all. It, it's, uh, it, it, it's just the fact that 
Obama gave a, a lifetime achievement award to Yusuf Salam, one of them, is so disgusting to me and, mm. and so revolting and shows how deep this the innocence fraud is in our culture. It's really sick. And I think that he, he picked Yusuf Salam because he was the one of the Central Park Five, the one of all of them that didn't confess. The, his mother stopped him from confessing. And that's why I think he was given that award and none of the other ones were. Weird. That's well, think about too it. too weird. Yeah. Um. You have to remember Obama's a lawyer. <laughs> you can't prove it, right? He didn't confess. Yeah. And a judge acquitted him of the rape. But what about all the other, what about all the other people that were beaten that night? Who did that? It's disgusting. It, um, it really, it, you never stop throwing up. You know, I, I talked to a British journalist about this and I, for about two hours. And at the end, I really thought he th thinks I'm a crazy person. Really? And it, 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 he asked me questions like how, how, I, how I know I couldn't be biased and I'm just seeing innocent fraud everywhere once I see it once. And I said to him, you know, because I hope that every case I start to look in, I hope it's a case of a wrongful conviction because the... If it's not, the other, the other option is that a guilty people, person has been not only released, but has been given millions of dollars by the state, by suing the state. Wow. That's a m much harder thing to live with than a jury made a mistake, the investigators made a mistake. And it's not mistakes. It's, uh, I mean, I, I feel like just to back, to our documentary sort of angle, there's, if you look into these cases and you read what you've done, read the transcripts, look a little bit, just a little bit deeper, you'll probably find that these people are guilty. So, yeah, I don't, I think that's a ridiculous argument. Did you ask him if he's read as many <laughs> court transcripts and documents as you have? Well, the case that he was working on he was in touch with, this is a UK case, a gentleman's lawyer, and the lawyer didn't want to hand over the transcripts to the journalist I was talking to. And I told him that should be a giant red flag. And that's a big difference between what I would consider the non-side, or what's called the non-supporter side in these cases, and the supporter side. The supporter side often does not want you to read the transcripts. They like to tie up the case, have their propaganda points, and won't encourage you to read, to read the transcript mm -hmm. and look deeper into it because they're so damning. So I said to him, the fact that, that this lawyer says he can't find or doesn't know where they are, this is this guy's lawyer, come on, doesn't know where the transcripts are, can't turn them over, that should be a giant red flag. Because as mm -hmm. long as he doesn't have the transcripts, he can control the narrative. And that's what the wrongful conviction movement is all about, controlling the narrative. And that's what a lawyer is paid to do. I mean, let's be real here. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's the whole I mean, point. If um, you learn nothing else from listening to my podcast, read the transcripts. And if you don't have time to read the whole transcripts, read the opening. And this is not just the prosecutor's side. Read the defense's opening statement. Read the defense's closing statement. Mm -hmm. You get both sides. This yes. is not 
It's not like, I think the wrongful conviction movement wants people to think that they, they get in there, they often say they have, there was no evidence. They think that the, the trial was the prosecutor presented their no evidence, and in five minutes the jury voted to convict. I mean, come on. I don't know. Wrapping up 2020, it's so just such a bizarre year, and the more I find out about certain things, and I think this is just one aspect of the unreality that our culture is built on at this point. Uh, you know, I just... <laughs> it's going to get wanna... worse before it gets better. Yeah. I think about this particular aspect of the disconnect from reality that we are all experiencing. It's just, it, I can't understand, other than the destruction of the institutions, which, you know, may or may not be uh, called for at this point, but sometimes I'm sort of really dark, and I'm like, fine, let it all burn down. I don't know. Like, mm -hmm. just like, that seems to be the end game. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk to me about this. Oh, good. Yeah. My pleasure.